You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So, hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. So, welcome again to another amazing Thursday evening. Um, Changing Reality, for all of you who don't know, and if it's the first time that you guys are tuning in, is a show where we interview phenomenal people from all walks of life who are changing the world around them, revolutionizing their industries, and genuinely creating an amazing impact in the lives of businesses, in the lives of individuals, and the lives of people all across the world. So we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, to even artists, musicians, inspiring individuals from students, faculty members, to even alumni here at Penn who have been doing amazing things. And of course, many of them who have gone on to do phenomenal things outside across the world from different countries. So we are very fortunate to hear all of these inspiring stories on how people change their reality so that hopefully we can figure out a little bit about what we can do to to change the world around us. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of their industries or people around them. And I'm super passionate about learning how those people are able to do that because by translating those stories into our own lives, it can actually create so much change and really opens up our minds to the world of possibilities that awaits us. Personally, I founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that collaborates with the Malaysian Ministry of Education and other uh, organizations all across the world to provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality from elementary to high school. And we do this through sessions, programs, experiential learning activities and projects that help students discover what they love doing, learn about themselves and the world around them, and actually go and start their own careers that create meaningful impact, not just for themselves, but for those around them too. And we've been very fortunate to date to work with nearly 15,000 students in over 900 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects, social enterprises, and so much more run by students aged 8 to 25 years old. And the main reason why we were able to do all of this is because of the stories of experienced professionals out there, because of their expertise, because of the ability to listen and understand what they've done that we've managed to apply, we've managed to bring to students. And because of that, we've even managed to grow to having a conference for 50,000 students in September 2021, where all of the speakers, all of the organizing team are actually young entrepreneurs, social change makers, and multiple award-winning community activists from eight different countries, all between the ages of 8 to 25 again. So that's what we're having this year. That's the power of stories just to show you guys. And if you have any questions about it, do drop it in the show chat below. But Changing Reality here is right now to give bites of that information to all of you every week so that you're continuously inspired and have a little bit of guidance on your path to awesomeness. So today's speaker is someone who is extremely, extremely cool and well-versed in the industry of marketing. I I'd normally give a very long introduction, but to be very fair, I saw an amazing post by one of our audience yesterday, which actually said to know why you've got to tune into today's session and listen to his sharing. Um, you All you have to do is Google the name of our guest speaker, and you will see a whole bunch of articles, newspaper features, TEDx talks, which actually shows the amazing work that he's done and the results that he's had in this industry. 
Today, we have Professor Peter Feder, whose expertise centers around the analysis of behavioral data to understand and forecast customer shopping trends, purchasing activities, and general business growth. He is a professor of marketing at Warren, so part of our Penn family. And he's worked with firms from a wide range of industries, from anything that you can think of, telecommunications all the way up to gaming, uh, financial services to pharmaceuticals. So he knows this whole industry of marketing across the board in a way. His insights is actually documented in several books, one of his most notable um, cu called Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage, which is very cool. And I've been reading little glimpses of it, so highly recommend it to all of you. And other than being a professor at Wharton, which is already huge, he co-founded a predictive analytics firm called Zodiac in 2015, which was sold to Nike, and later co-founded another firm called Theta Equity Partners that commercialized um, his more recent work on customer-based corporate valuation. In 2017, Professor Fader was named uh, by Advertising Age as one of its inaugural 25 marketing technology trailblazers and was the only academician, um, academy on the list. So with that introduction, I think um, without further ado, I'd invite the Professor on screen with us to share his awesome insights with all of you here today. Well, thank you, Harsha. That's quite an intro. I hope I can live up to it here. I'll do my best. No, but thank you so much for joining. I think that I could not have introduced you in any other way simply because there's so many things you do that I think I missed so much out. But how are you feeling? I'm doing great. You know, it, 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 all of those things only become possible because of being an amazing institution like Penn that just gives you the, the resources, the stimulation, the students who can help take <laughs> crazy ideas and bring them to life. And so I've just been very, very lucky. And, and these are just good times. All right. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, I've been sending this link for today's show to so many people and everyone has wanted to hear from you, whether they are students who are existing on uh, campus who have taken classes in the marketing arena. There are even students who are thinking who are new to Wharton who are like, oh my God, what do, like, what do I even learn about? Like, what's there to offer? And I was like, come watch this interview to even many individuals who I've known personally who run businesses, who are in the social enterprise field, who are in the for-profit field in a sense. So everyone wants to listen to you. But I've got to ask, this interview is a lot about yourself as well, as much as the work you do. So how did you even get into this field of marketing? If I'm not mistaken, you actually started off doing your bachelor's degree at MIT in maths, which is quite a little bit of a difference. So how did you actually get into the solar arena anyway? Yeah, I mean, why would anyone become a marketing professor? You know, <laughs> do, do, do you know anyone who when they're like eight years old say, mommy, daddy, I want to be a marketing professor? No, that doesn't happen. Uh, and I was about as far from it as possible. As you said, I was a math major at MIT, crunching numbers. Uh, I would have probably ended up at Wall Street or with a consulting firm or something like that. But this one professor came up to me uh, as an undergraduate and she said, you ought to get a PhD in marketing. And I said, you ought to get your head checked. I'm going to marketing, I'm a, I'm a math guy. But she painted this picture of what marketing would become. And she was right with all the data and the ability to kind of tag and track customers and understand who's gonna do what, and then to develop products and services around their different needs. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that we take for granted today, it was science fiction back in 1982 
uh, when I was having this conversation. Uh, and I just, you know, followed. <laughs> and I'm so glad I did because she was right. Uh, and it's been, it was an amazing time to get into an amazing field. And a lot of the, the stories that she was telling back then are really hitting with full force right now. Uh, and I think getting better and more interesting all the time. What was the one thing she said back then that you didn't really believe in that you see is like happening right now? Like just to share with us. It's it's so funny. So she the the, the metaphor that she used again. Keep in mind this is 1982. That's 500 years ago, uh, and she said we are in the process of building the electron microscope of the customer. Okay, to really be able to, to see individuals and know how they're different from each other and how they differ over time. And she would make a lot of analogies to this brand new area of like the whole, the whole human genome project, which itself hadn't even started yet, um, that we're going to see things at a granular level and in a way that was unimaginable. And I didn't entirely believe her. Uh, but A, she was very persuasive and she would have made me do it even if I didn't want to. And B, if there was any chance she was right, then, wow, this would be super cool. And you know what? Even if she was wrong, getting a PhD from MIT wouldn't be a bad thing, even if you went back to industry. So I figured, what the heck? Let's try it. Let, let's, let's place our bets. And it was pretty clear. Uh, again, this is years before Google was founded and, and all that, but it was pretty clear that things started moving in that direction. Uh, I w could have never imagined the acceleration of it, could have never imagined the impact of it, could have never imagined that the nerdy, technical, mathy things that I do would become popular, um, but it, it's all happened. So it's all a great big surprise. I'm going to enjoy my kind of 15 minutes of glory before I go hide under a rock for the rest of my career. But while the sun is shining on it, I'm going to uh, take advantage of every moment. All right. And I think that you're completely right that today all of those things you mentioned are things that are very possible and that everyone is obsessed with knowing more about. So when you first finished your PhD, you became a professor at Wharton. How did that happen? And how was that whole industry like at that point of time? Did they believe that this was where it was heading? Or were you just one of those people who had foresight and inspiration in a sense? You know, people give me a lot of credit for, for, that, for a lot of the things that I've done. Uh, and, I, and I don't want to humble brag or anything like that, but I really do mean it sincerely that so much of it is, is right place, right time. Uh, and, and this is a great example of it because, uh, again, I, I, it was the right time because a, a nerdy, mathy guy like myself could all of a sudden call himself a marketing scientist, which 30 years ago was kind of like an oxymoron. It was kind of like jumbo shrimp, you know. Um, but, but today, people don't laugh. People don't make fun of me. They understand that there's a lot of science in marketing that just really didn't exist back then. So part of it is right, right time, and part of it really is right place. In fact, I didn't want to come to Wharton. I'm the first to admit it. Uh, I wanted to go to Harvard. Oh, and I, had, I, 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 and I had an offer to go there. I love them. They love me. But the same professor, her name is Lee McAllister. She's now a professor at... University of Texas at Austin. She said, nah, ah, 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 you're not going to Harvard. As, as proud as your parents would be of you, you're going to Wharton. Because Wharton is going to surround you with the colleagues, the resources, and the culture that's going to let you be you. It's going to let you do all that mathy stuff, but make it really relevant and make it really impactful 
and, and give you, uh, again, colleagues to work with and amazing students to train. And boy, oh boy, was she right. And I always wonder about the path not taken. I'm sure life would have been good if it had gone to Harvard or, or Yale or some other school. Uh, I'm not saying those would have been bad choices, but everything she said about Wharton was true. And a lot of the things that I've accomplished, starting these companies, teaching some crazy, weird courses, would not have happened if I had gone anyplace else. Uh, just the, the rocket fuel that Wharton provided in terms of people and platforms. And again, just the, the entrepreneurial culture, uh, it's, it's pretty unique here. I don't know about predictive analytics much, but if your professor ever predicts anything, I think I'm going to be like, I'll be the first to believe her after this interview. So like, if she's got any lottery ticket numbers, let me know. I'll get them. Like, <laughs> like she seems to like get things right, but we're so glad to have you at Penn. Like, I know that as a new student, that probably doesn't mean much to you, but like, I'm so glad that to be at a place which we have amazing faculty like you and to learn from your expertise. And tell us a little bit about that early research that you did. Um, you were always kind of like on the right track to this field, but it wasn't probably as where it is today. But you've also tackled a range of topics along the way. So uh, you've, you have even um, did little case studies on big companies like Starbucks. You even kind of like took a look at the music industry. Tell us where, um, what was the first thing that really made you feel like, wow, I'm making a difference the work yeah. that I do real world impact. Great question. Because, you know, it didn't happen. That, that whoa moment didn't really happen until I was already a professor here for over 10 years. Uh, so in the beginning, really the only industry that was interested in the nerdy mathy things that I do was what we call the consumer packaged goods industry, grocery products. Uh, that there are a bunch of companies out there uh, all around the world. Here in the U.S., it's companies, many of you would know about a company like Nielsen that basically would collect data from the point of sale so we would know who was buying what when. Uh, and so a lot of the early work that I did, really the first 10 years of my career, was very limited to things like breakfast cereals and salad dressings and just grocery stuff because they had the data and those companies were very interested in asking the right questions. I had a wonderful relationship with a lot of those companies and a lot of these data providers, basically they would come to me to ask for a particular product or service that they wanted to commercialize. I would build a new model for them. They would commercialize it. I would write up a paper that would get published and would help me get tenure here. So I was perfectly happy in this very limited sandbox of, of packaged goods. But then the whole um, internet thing started. Um, basically, you know, again, years after I was here, and at first, I was pretty skeptical. At first, I, I don't need this new thing. I'm happy forecasting ketchup and potato chips, whatever. Um, but then a couple of students started coming to me and said, you know, it would be way more interesting if you started predicting things like album sales in the music industry. And, and, and why don't we start looking at things like, you know, professional sports or, or retail and, and other areas. And at first, I was kind of resistant. But then I realized, you know what? Uh, let's try it. But it turns out that the patterns are just as relevant. It turns out that the models sometimes work even better in these other industries. And the impact that we can have on them would be even greater because they weren't asking these questions. Unlike the packaged goods companies, the music industry had no interest in it at all. Uh, and so I can make a bigger difference there. And it, it was frustrating and it was hard and there was a lot of heartbreak along the way. 
but I kind of stayed with it more out of personal interest than anything else. And again, right place, right time. Eventually, a lot of these other industries kind of turned around and finally found my kind of work, my kinds of models, my kinds of managerial questions. They found them interesting and relevant. And it was just great to be there for them when they woke up. Okay, very cool. And I remember this one TED TEDx talk that I watched you give where you mentioned that it's like you would think that it's all about the customer and that it's about customer centricity to quote you in a sense that marketing should revolve around the customer's behavior, their interactions, whether they're a long-term customer or not. But many times companies get it wrong. They're often very product-based and all of that. And you shifting the way people think has really um, become very relevant now, but you were a pioneer in this, as I mentioned. So I think you, <laughs> and I think you actually wrote um, a book about this in about 2011, 2012, called customer centricity and about focusing on the right customers for strategic advantage. When this book was published, when you wrote this book and all, um, what was the reactions from the co companies out there? Because you did like write about companies like Starbucks, those like a lot of the big players out there. So were you, they were getting thank you letters saying, oh my God, we never saw it like that. Or no, or were you getting calls saying like, oh, oh no. what are you doing? <laughs> All right, so let me back up and give you the, the, the whole story, which really does reflect the trajectory of my career. Because in the beginning, uh, it, was, it really was about forecasting product sales. So, you know, so, so Unilever's about to launch a new kind of toothpaste, whatever. How many units of it will we sell? And so, again, I built a tenure case. I built a reputation doing product-oriented stuff. And it was right around the turn of the century where we did a little pivot on it then instead of saying how many people will buy the product, we started using the customer instead of the product as the unit of analysis. And, and so when you take that kind of 90 degree flip on it, you notice some really interesting patterns. You notice that the customers are wildly different from each other. And so to talk about what the customer wants is ridiculous because there is no the customer. There is no average customer. There's this crazy spread of customers and some of them are extremely valuable they're gonna stay with you forever and buy all the time and spend a lot of money and buy whatever it is you put out there but they're the tiny tiny minority of your customer base most of your customers buy once and never come back again and so you can't make a statement about the customer and you really need to do exactly as you said if you look at the subtitle of book number one which is you got to focus on i like the way you say it Focus on the right customers for strategic advantage. But not all customers are created equal. And if we can understand those differences, we can make more money than if we kind of play it right down the middle. So I put this out there. It was basically just a, a way to justify and to clarify and to, to, to kind of illustrate and motivate the research that I was doing, the nerdy mathy stuff. No, no math in here, just you know, words and pictures. Because um, I wanted companies to wake up and smell the data and realize that a lot of the stuff they were talking about and doing was not wise, not optimal, not correct. Uh, and I named names. I, I singled out a lot of companies. You mentioned Starbucks. And I'm not afraid to tell companies that they're doing the wrong things. Nordstrom, uh, Apple. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I got the data on my side. Starbucks is a very interesting one because... I would say that, you know, a lot of these companies are touted as being customer centric. 
that they're kind of nice and they 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 treat people well in a generic way. But they have no right. idea about the differences across the customers and who the right ones are. And that's why I go after them. And there was an executive at Starbucks uh, who called me up and said, you know, tell me more about your work. And I was so flattered. And it wasn't until years later that I found out that she was assigned to call me to set me straight, to basically... <laughs> Uh, to 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 kind of get me in line with what Starbucks was doing, and instead, I didn't even know it. I convinced her that what everything I was talking about was actually what Starbucks needed, uh, and so she, her name is Amy Johnson, and she's now the chief marketing officer at a big U.S. company called Zillow that a lot of people might have heard of. Um, and she kind of started drinking the Kool Aid and started making big changes at Starbucks uh, as a result of her conversations with, with me that were supposed to go the other way around. And so it was it was stories like that, true stories, real companies, real people who started seeing things differently, started taking action, started finding success with it, that really that was the whoa, you know, moment for me where I really do have a story to tell uh, and it really does make a difference. And I was just so fortunate to have a chance to move beyond the pure academic work, writing journal articles and all that kind of thing, to write books that would be a little bit more accessible, that would have impact, and of course would lead to some of my own startups, which we can talk about as well. So it's been, I, I could have never imagined that senior executives at big world-class companies would ever really care about what I have to say. Um, and so it's just immensely gratifying that they do. And I, I really do appreciate it and just never take it for granted. All right. And again, something that I feel um, all of us get inspired with hearing your story, because again, you see that academic point of view, but you also see how that translates to real life. And there's a couple of really cool things that that in your history have actually happened. Like I think your whole um, like take on predictive analysis, I think you taught it to a class once and you did a little project where your class actually predicted better um, the future of a particular company than analysts on Wall Street did. How did you even, like, what did you even tell these students that made them smarter than the guys on Wall Street? Or oh, at least I love that story. Uh, okay, so I'm building all these, these models. Uh, so again, we first did this pivot from forecasting product stuff to forecasting customer stuff. And it's actually pretty simple in a way. It's how many customers will we acquire? How long will they stay with us until they leave and no longer need us? Over that horizon, how many purchases will they make? And how much will they spend when they do? So for years, I've just been predicting these separate behaviors and then bringing them all together into this concept of customer lifetime value, which, of course, is the big focus of book number two. <laughs> Implement a winning strategy driven by customer life, whatever. I'm not here to sell books. Um, and, and those models work really, really well. Um, but then uh, I've had a lot of life-changing events, and one of them was meeting a student. His name is Dan McCarthy. And he said, not only are these models really great for marketing purposes, but, you know, we can get the people on Wall Street to pay attention to them as well. That we can do a better job than the folks at Wall Street at projecting revenue and free cash flow and all that finance stuff that he understood as a finance major when he was an undergraduate here at Wharton. Um, and basically saying, if you think about it, every dollar a company makes is through customer acquisition, retention, repeat purchase, and spend. So let's, let's basically use our models to project revenue and cash flow 
and we can do it more accurately over longer horizons and with better diagnostic understanding than the way the people on Wall Street do it. So exactly as you said, in the main course that I teach, Applied Probability Models in Marketing, sounds like fun, huh? <laughs> um, uh, we, we had the data from Dish Network, big uh, you know subscription TV company here in the US, and we actually took all the data that they, that they made publicly available uh, and, and basically assigned the students to forecast the number of customers that they'd acquired. Uh, and, and, and basically for the next year, uh, we showed how the students' very simple forecasts were just way, way more accurately than the consensus forecast put out there by the Wall Street analysts. And even our overall assessment of the value of the company, we said in one of our papers that this company was overvalued by Wall Street. And sure enough, uh, we, were, we, we were proven right. So you want to be careful about taking stock tips from a marketing professor. That might be a mistake. But just in terms of, of, of projecting revenue and the underlying components, the marketing type things, customer acquisition, retention, we can do that really well. And that's the basis of company number two, uh, is basically just doing that with a variety of different firms to try to build a bridge between the folks doing the finance stuff and the folks doing the marketing stuff to get them on the same page as each other, to use the same data, the same models for the very different kinds of decisions that they're each making. What fun that's been. All right. It sounds very fascinating. And it does sound like science fiction a little bit to me. So I'll, and like the way that you're able to predict so many things um, with, as you said, metrics that are relatively simple in a sense compared to, I think, a lot of the things that happen. Um, do you feel like um, as much like personally, the data speaks, right? The result speaks for itself. But do you feel like um, there is a little bit of a too much emphasis on data and focus on um, the analytic side when with this whole recent, I would say, um, like recent craze with a lot of social media companies getting metrics on absolutely everything? Do you feel like by having too much data, it confuses them a little bit that they forget what are the points that they should be hitting in a way? It's such a good point. And, and people might be surprised by the answer because you figure that as a math guy, data, that I'd like big data and machine learning and, and AI and all that stuff. And I, and I do. And there, there, there is a role for it. But it's not where we begin. Uh, and and the, the, the real way to do things is through Occam's razor, a concept that I bet everyone's heard of but they often get wrong. So I want every one of you to shout at your microphone right now, not that I'm listening, what is Occam's razor? And I bet what a lot of you will say is that the simplest model is the best one. And that's not true, that's not right. What Occam's razor tells us is that of all the explanations that do a pretty good job, the simplest one of them is, is the one to go with. So I wanna make things, first and foremost, they gotta be effective. I want models that fit well, that forecast well, that tell a good story, that are very robust. Uh, but among those models, I want the simplest one. So I want as little data as possible. That's been my mission for years now. How little data do I need in order to come up with good forecasts, tell good stories, have a lot of faith in the results. And so a lot of the stuff out there, a lot of this big data, like you mentioned, let's collect all this data about how people are using social media or where they're located in their social graph, or let's collect information about bioinformatics or neuro this or psycho that. Um, and a lot of that stuff is interesting. It's nice to know, but it's not very predictive. It's not very necessary. 
So, so I'm trying to bring as much discipline and focus and as much uniformity and standardization instead of saying, well, for this company, we need data X, Y, Z, but for that company, we need ABC. I'd rather come up with a small common set of metrics that would be that, that all companies should be looking at and putting out there. Uh, and, and that really goes against the grain of this big data era. But man, oh man, it works really well. And, 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 and sometimes people are really surprised at how much you can do with so little. And that's my job, is to prove to them that it's true and why and how they can benefit from it, not only in terms of the forecasts, but in terms of the decisions that they make. Yeah, but I think you are the person to listen to. You're a professor. You've got the academic box ticked. You're an author. But you've also got that entrepreneurship box ticked in a sense. So you also founded a predictive analytics firm, too, if I'm not mistaken. And the first one was actually called uh, Zodiac. So tell us a little bit about why did you even want to get into the whole entrepreneurship arena? Was it like one day you were like, so like, oh, my God, these people aren't listening. I'll show them myself in a sense. Or that, how did it that, that is a big part of it, actually, because for years and years, uh, 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 people, either students or companies would come to me and say, why don't you commercialize this stuff? These models work so well. Um, and, and I was at first pretty resistant. I'm a professor. I'm not an entrepreneur. You know, you do it. Um, but at some point it became irresistible because I was writing all these, these lightweight books to try to, you know, get people motivated to want to do this stuff. But even then there was this, this issue with getting them to actually do it. And once again, it was my students, I already mentioned one of them, Dan McCarthy, who basically helped motivate me to say, okay, let's really do it. Let's, let's, let's take these models that we're using in the classroom and let's make them better and let's make them faster and let's make them more scalable. Let's do it in a way that companies have no choice but to use these models because they'll be so easy, they'll be so effective, they'll be so impactful. So we got Zodiac off the ground back in 2015 and basically, we worked with a lot of companies and a lot of the different industries you mentioned. So retail and travel and hospitality and pharmaceuticals and telecommunications and gaming, lots of companies to bring this idea of lifetime value to life at full commercial scale and to show them the 50 fun things to do with lifetime value once they can calculate it. And it worked and it was a big success. Uh, and as you mentioned, in 2018, we had no intention of selling this company, but Nike came along and gave us an offer we couldn't refuse. And if, if any of you are following what's going on in the business world, Nike has been doing amazing things in the last couple of years, trying to become a direct marketer, to really understand customers at a granular level. Instead of just shipping boxes of athletic shoes to retailers and not having any idea what's going to happen to it, to now have a direct relationship with each and every person. Uh, on lots of dimensions, not just what shoes they wear, but but the activities that they do. Anyway, so Nike bought the company. That by itself was an amazing validation because all these other companies started saying, well, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. If Nike's doing it, we ought to be doing it too. And so that was a wonderful outcome. Not only like, hey, cool, we sold the company, but but again, as a validation that achieved visibility and motivation much greater than anything I could ever do on my own. And then we turned around to found Theta Equity Partners to use the same models, but more with more of this financial orientation, uh, kind of going after another sector that hasn't been looking at things our way. And that's been even better 
because if we can get investors on board with it, then it becomes much easier to win over the rest of the company and have big impact around the world. And that's still early, but it's it's been just so much fun to pretend I know something about finance, to have a co-founder who really does, and a whole team of students, every one of whom, except one, are Penn alums, uh, just to kind of sit around and talk about this stuff. It's it's just it's just it's great to bring a lot of the research to life, uh, to tell stories in the classroom about practical applications, uh, and and just to uh, just to create a community, a worldwide community around a way of dare I say, changing reality. Uh, and it's been <laughs> and it's been really uh, really interesting to do that. And you can see why we got you on the show. You really are changing reality. And um, just to sidetrack a little bit, when you became an entrepreneur, when you started um, this whole journey, in a sense, what was the one thing that you didn't expect that you couldn't predict in a way? Wow. Uh, so I, I was a reluctant entrepreneur, like I said, because I, I'm a classy example of those who can't do teach. Uh, but it ended up being so interesting. Now, besides all the kind of commercial aspects, you know, making money and all that kind of thing, but actually getting involved with a business and actually having to think about things like, well, what should the name be? And just, you know, all the businessy types of decisions. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm any good at them, but it's such an interesting complement to like all of the day-to-day -day academic stuff that I do. Uh, and to see uh, to, 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 that the academic stuff really works and really can influence people uh, and to find ways to reinforce that message and to kind of get people on board with it. So it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, I always thought there'd be tension between the academic and the, and the practical, at least the, the, the commercial uh, aspects of it. Uh, like I said, in the past, I was very happy just to hand my models to companies and let them deal with it. But it turns out that the being a little bit on that side of the fence. Now, I'm not giving up the day job, uh, but but actually getting my hands dirty with it uh, ha has been very, very interesting. And then there's this wonderful feedback loop because when I talk to companies about the models, they give me some like really interesting problems to work on. I had a, just a great conversation earlier today um, with like, you know what? That's really interesting. We could write a paper on that uh, and commercialize it uh, and so there's this wonderful virtuous cycle that we're, we're in no way are we selling out that the stuff we're doing in industry is at least as, as, as rigorous and intellectually stimulating as if we just stayed in the ivory tower. It's, it's just the best of all worlds. Yeah, but I think that that's like true like learning and true application of learning in a sense where not only do you have the academic sides, it's like you also apply it in a way and that, as you said, creates that virtuous cycle. And how do you feel like this whole, like by you going and applying these things that you've learned and really seeing that impact has affected the students that you teach and has translated differently into the classes that you now host? So it's, it's, it's a couple of funny things. So number one, no doubt it makes my courses much more popular. When I first started <laughs> teaching my beloved elective course, I would beg people to take it, please, 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 I'll be your best friend. And I'd be lucky to get 20 students in there. Uh, and this past semester, I think I had like 220 uh, on a long wait list. So part of it is I'm teaching the same stuff, but all of a sudden people care. Now, part of it is the changing times. Part of it is that more people, nothing about me, it's just there's just much more interest in data and analytics and all that stuff. It's a generational thing. So again, I'm riding that wave. 
But there's no doubt that part of it is that students see some of the commercial success and all of a sudden they see me as like Mr. Entrepreneurial Guy. And it's really funny that they'll come to me with their own startup ideas and thinking I know something about it. And, you know, I'll play along. I'll talk to anyone. But 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 really, a lot of it is I, I know about commercializing my stuff. But, you know, I, 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 don't, don't, I, I'm not showing up on Shark Tank anytime soon because, you know, what I know is, is, is what I do. Uh, pr pretty narrow. But again, it's been good to get some visibility into it. But I do understand my limitations. And again, the day job, the academic stuff comes first. Uh, and as, as interesting as to, to dabble a little bit, it'll never kind of dominate my life uh, as much as it does for a lot of our, our current and former students like yourself, who are, who are really committed to, to entrepreneurship of different types. All right. And you also like are known for producing some very genius students, just a testimony that they actually end up working with you and bringing ideas to life and help you in this whole changing reality about. So what do you think is the most important component that you pass on to them that has enabled them to really take what you what you teach and really bring it out there, really use it in their life and make sense of it? I mean, a lot of people can just go and learn something but it doesn't have that same impact that you've had on your students. So oh, what I've got a lot to talk about. I'm so glad you raised <laughs> this because because working with students, uh, this is going to sound really trite, but it's really honest. It's, 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 it's so near and dear to my heart. I mean, uh, as a, as a research-oriented professor, publish or perish, um, <laughs> we're not supposed to, you know, teach more than we have to, but but I teach every semester. I have never taken a sabbatical, which is not a smart thing, but I because I, I, I just love to spread the gospel. And again, it's a virtuous cycle because I'll teach students and then they'll inspire me to found companies, to come up with new ideas and so on. So, uh, so a lot of it is paying it forward. A lot of it is looking at what Lee McAllister did for me 40 years ago at MIT and basically going to other students, again, nobody wakes up and, and, and wants to be a marketing scientist, at least <laughs> not many people do, and to convince them, to find them, the mathiest, nerdiest kids at Penn who would never want to do marketing and to convince them that it's actually cooler, more interesting, and more impactful than going to Wall Street or doing something else. So, so part of it is kind of a challenge for me. And then once I get these students, I want to learn from them. Uh, and I want to collaborate with them, whether it's to bring them in to get PhDs and then to be their advisor and then to kind of work with them for years to come or on the business side where they'll take some of my ideas and commercialize them and we'll either co-found things or I'll advise their companies. And I just take such pride and joy in watching them take some of the models that I developed and going off there and doing cool things with them that I could have never imagined. So I have found that this perfect synergy between the research and the teaching, I'm so fortunate about that because for so many faculty, they don't have that connection. It's usually like, oh, I got to go teach. I guess I got to turn off my brain now and go into the classroom and follow the script. But for me, I teach what I love. I love what I teach. Uh, and I can bring the, the academic into the commercial world, the commercial into the classroom. Uh, and I just I, I, I just hope I'll be able to have that that virtuous cycle for the rest of my career uh, and a, an audience of, of eager students who want to uh, hear my ridiculous stories because I love to tell them uh, and, and to uh, add to those stories all the time. 
And you've already got people in the comments saying that they'd love to take your classes. So you, again, I think the passion speaks for itself. What do you think, like for students who may not, who are in your classes, they may not be performing up to par with all of the genius and the brilliance and the people who are passionate about this. What do you do with students like them? Do you just try to close your eyes and ignore them and hope they go away? Or like, do you still feel that learning this has so much value no matter what they do? You know, I, I, what I see is a, a, very often a lot of the value from the course doesn't really manifest until after people have taken it. So there will be a lot of people who love the course and they're really engaged. And of course, that's, that's, that's terrific. But what I tell my students on day one, and boy, oh boy, does this sound arrogant. I shouldn't say it in the classroom and I shouldn't say it right now, but I really do believe it, which is I want to change the way that people see the world. Okay, I'm not just here to teach you a bunch of techniques and tell you a bunch of stories about applications. No, I want you to, to live the rest of your life looking at different phenomena, whether they're business, whether it's in, you know, uh, whether it's social impact, whether it's even things about elections or physics or sports. I want you to see things differently. And so very often I will hear from students a year or two later saying, you know, you were right. And I wish I paid closer attention in class because <laughs> I was too busy just focusing on the test or, or whatever else. Uh, and so, so I'm really, in the same way a lot of my research has this long-term orientation, uh, the way I teach is, is that same way as well. I want to have impact on you that not only will last beyond the classroom, but, but will often have bigger impact as more time goes by. And so I'm okay if students aren't if they don't fully get it at the time they're doing it, there's just nothing better than getting that email two, three years later saying, boom, I got it now. Now can you help me remember what the models are to, to help me do it or whatever else? And that, that's great. So I really do have a very active community. I have a private LinkedIn group just for students who have taken my class just so we can continue the conversation for years and years and years afterwards. And so it's okay. I don't really care what happens in the classroom. It, it's what happens down the road. And again, I think that that goes back to your whole ability to not just teach and not just like understand it yourself, but apply it, make impact for others in a way. So going back a little bit to you, how do you have like how do you fit so many things in your brain? I mean, you're an author, you're an entrepreneur, you're an academician. You also teach with so much passion. How does all of that like? Do you like? Is there anything else you think about, or like does that take up the full space? How do you even manage your time with all of those things? Uh, I, I try to live a pretty normal life. I'd like to believe <laughs> I spend a lot of time with my family and friends and do a, a lot of different uh, outside activities. Uh, but but here's the thing. Num number one. Uh, the fact that the research and teaching fits so well and the whole, that whole virtuous cycle that I described, that just creates just lots of synergies uh, that, that, are, that I take full advantage of. And then the other part of that is the students themselves. I am the world's ultimate collaborator. I mean, I've written, I don't know, 50-something papers. Only one of them was written by myself. So I know how to work with co-authors. Uh, and so I, I, I pick them well. I, I kind of ride their, their coattails very, very well. Uh, and that's going to be true whether it's the academic work that I do. And as I mentioned, uh, it's riding the coattails of a lot of my former students, starting up companies and giving me really good ideas. So a lot of it is just is, is allocating my time to know how to, to best leverage the different collaborations that I have. Uh, and so I can end up juggling a lot more 
Now, now you might say, I'm not pulling my weight on any one of them. I, I'd like to believe that I am. Uh, but by really doing things as, as part of kind of a, a community effort, instead of trying to do everything myself, uh, I just end up getting a lot more done, maybe getting a little bit more credit than I deserve for some of those things. Uh, but, but it all does fit together very, very nicely. No, but I think that that's a very important point to bring out because many times I feel like everyone feels like they are the genius that they've got to like do everything by themselves. But collaboration is what makes the world turn around. And I feel like you showed that and exemplary to the fact that the more you're willing to collaborate, the more impact that you create as a whole. So thank you for teaching that through your actions in a way. And yeah, <laughs> no, go ahead. Yeah, and it's, and sometimes it is hard because because sometimes you know, if you're working with a student and they don't understand the stuff as, as well as you do, and you know you want to get this thing out, it is tempting to, you know, over advise. Uh, and I just realized again, I'm in it for the long run. I want them to learn. I'm going to take my time. Maybe we'll get a little bit less done when they're kind of working with me as a student. But in the long run, it's going to be in their best interest, and I'm going to watch them flourish. And maybe again, I'll be able to ride their coattails later on. Uh, and even if I don't get my name on some of their papers, just the, the, the pride that I feel, and then they themselves will train other students, and I might be able to, you know, either hire those students to work with my companies or or whatever else. Uh, it, it just to, to build that kind of community instead of having to, you know, always be the the leader of everything. I'm, I'm perfectly happy. To, to sit in the passenger seat, if not the back seat, uh, with, with a lot of my students and, again, other, other kinds of collaborators. All right. Very cool. And I think circling back to the things that you do found, like you were co-founder, you know, our co-founder, and you, the things you do lead, um, your new startup, in a sense, um, Theta Equity Partners. You guys are revolutionizing finance, I've heard, and a lot of it through customer-based corporate valuations, which you already mentioned. And this whole um, idea of CB, CV to abbreviate. <laughs> I think like you actually provide options for companies to, to have like an express analysis for them to actually um, like get a very quick report and also to have like a deeper dive to actually understand the analytics a bit more better. Why did you position your company like this? Why do you provide two different services in a sense when again, wouldn't more data be better for those who want to know about it? Or is this some kind of secret marketing strategy that is exclusive for marketing professors to know about that we puny humans can't possibly understand in a way. No, it's actually quite simple. Uh, it, it, the different companies, different investors have different kinds of needs. Uh, so for instance, if you're thinking of buying that digitally native women's cosmetics company, you really want to make sure that you, you know what it's worth and you want to take that, that deeper dive. Uh, but on the other hand, if you're you're, if you're a private equity firm and you own a whole bunch of portfolio companies and you just want to do a kind of a quick check-in on them or you want to find ways to compare them to each other, then maybe doing things that are at a more surface level will be adequate just to make sure that they're kind of staying on, on track. Um, so, so, the, so it's basically it's the same models that we're running, but it's just you know, greater depth uh, for, for some than others, depending on the kinds of decisions that are going to be made. Uh, and, it, and it goes back to a lot of the, the, the math stuff that we found ways to, to implement basically the same models with different kinds of inputs. So sometimes we have a lot of data. Sometimes we have very limited data. Uh, and, and so it, it all depends on what the company has available to it, how quickly they want the analysis run, what kinds of, of decisions they're going to want to make. And so, you know, I want to basically accommodate different kinds of customers, in this case, 
investors or, or, or corporate clients in, in different kinds of ways. Uh, and, uh, and again, for me, intellectually, it, it's kind of fun to figure out how to run the models differently for different kinds of data inputs or different kinds of industries. Uh, that leads to interesting research and it leads to, to really good impact. Amazing. And I asked that because like building on that a little bit, what's the one thing that you feel like investors should know about the companies that, they, that they're investing in that you have discovered they normally don't even look at? It goes back to what I said before. If, if we're going to want to uh, look at your revenue, if we want to forecast your revenue ahead, and again, that's the lifeblood of finance and investing. Instead of just looking at the overall number of dollars we brought in and trying to project that forward, let's break it down into those four fundamental behaviors, customer acquisition, customer retention, repeat purchasing, and spend. And so if you're an investor in a company, instead of just saying how much money you're going to make, you should be asking questions about those behaviors. How many customers are you acquiring and how long are they staying and how often are they buying? And so what we want to do is to go to companies and demand that they disclose metrics around those fundamental behaviors. Some companies automatically do it. Like I told you the story earlier about Dish Network. Great credit to them that they were disclosing the right kinds of metrics that let us do some of the kind of reverse engineering and forecast that I mentioned before. Other companies don't. And so, so we've been spending a lot of time going to companies, going to investors, going to accounting regulators and saying, you should disclose these metrics. These are the kinds of things that investors should demand to see. These are the kinds of things that will help the world understand how much value is there. So you don't have the, these kinds of surprises when a company looks real good and then their stock plummets. Uh, and so, so if, if we can put the right kinds of metrics out there and make those as universal as other kinds of metrics that already show up on the balance sheet and the income statement and all that other financy stuff, the world would be a better place and the kinds of models that I like to run would become much more commonplace as well. And that's the kind of thing that we're doing at Fate Equity. If people are interested, again, I'm not here to sell stuff, but one of the things that we love to do, you know, people might enjoy this, is we love to look at IPOs, initial public offerings. Before companies go public, very often they disclose a pretty good amount of data. And so if you go to thetaequity.com, you can see some of the IPO analyses we did, where we predict the value of these companies before they go public. And so we did this for Slack and Lyft and Farfetch and Revolve, a bunch of different companies, wide variety of companies. And for Slack, for instance, before they went public, we said, this is a great company. It's going to be worth like $27 billion. And everyone laughed at us and said, oh, no, no, no. They're going to get crushed by Microsoft Teams. You're way overvaluing it. And this past December, Salesforce.com bought it for $27 billion. Exactly what we said two years earlier. And so it's just great fun to do this stuff. And, and, and most of the time, we're right, which is to say, not necessarily we pick the number, but we tend to be correct in saying this company's overvalued, this company's undervalued. So at least we get a good sense of the direction because we're looking at the fundamental customer behavior. We have a better understanding of what's going on rather than trying to look at the, the, the company as a, as a single entity. You know, breaking it down really helps. All right. And 
final or one of the final questions is for all of the companies out there who are right now probably reevaluating how they look at their customer base, how they actually um, process the information that they have. But what is the one thing that you could that you would advise them to do to kind of like put their brains on right and see things as it is? Because no matter how much data they have, if they're fixed in a certain way of looking at things, it may not be easy for them to switch. So, so I, I, I can't give you one. I got to give you two. But they fit so well together. Uh, and we've really spoken about both of them. Uh, so, so, you know, first there's, here we go again, customer centricity. You really need to understand your customers at a granular level and all the patterns and all that sort of stuff. In fact, book number three is going to come out early next year, which is going to be called the customer base audit. So before we run any models, before we do any predictions, let's just understand the data that we have. Uh, so, so let's appreciate what, what I always like to say is celebrate heterogeneity. Understand that your customers are wildly different from each other, and that's a good thing. So that's thing number one. So really understand how your customers are different and the very regular, predictable, leverageable patterns. And then number two is once we have that, then we flip over to the finance side and let's look at the just right metrics that let us understand that heterogeneity and let us do financial stuff in addition to the marketing and operations things. And if we can get the marketing operations and finance people all on the same page, looking at the same data in the same way, running the same models, and then making different kinds of decisions, the world is a happy place. And it's a long way to go, but we've seen amazing success to start putting these ideas out there. But I really do believe that the, the biggest impact uh, is, is, is still yet to come. Uh, and I'm hoping that conversations like this and students like yourself who will be CEOs, you know, 20, 30 years from now, and will take these ideas with them instead of trying to convince today's old fart CEOs to change their realities. Uh, I, I really want this to be, as I said before, a generational thing. Uh, and I'm uh, eager to see how it all plays out. All right. And I think that that's very brilliantly laid out. Many times I feel like all of us, we either try to overgeneralize the customer or we don't, or we try to like, um, try to figure out everything about them. But I like how you say it's diverse. There's no one size fits all for your customers, but there are some customers that are more valuable. So spend the resources on that instead of trying to figure everything out. All right, very cool. And um, thank you for your kind words on behalf of like a student here at Penn. And a message please to leave us off with for all of the students or all the people who are probably getting into all of this. It may seem very overwhelming. There's a lot of things to learn. We don't even know where this industry is headed. I mean, you probably know you run a predictive analytics firm, so that's kind of your thing to predict. But like, what is that advice or that one tip that you'd give to everyone coming into this field? Or even if this might be the first time they're hearing about all of this. Sure, so, so let's go back to my story. If you could have told me, you know, again, but when I was an undergrad at MIT, that I'd be a marketing professor. No! Every one of you was put on the earth to do something. The problem is you don't know what that something is. And so you really need to expose yourself to as much different ideas and fields and methodologies and, and to be open-minded and to be curious and, and, and don't be a lemming. Don't just follow along and do things because either that's what your parents told you to do or that's what your older sibling did or that's what your best friend is doing. That, that one day you're going to be hit by that lightning bolt 
But you might not know it at the time. When when this nutty professor at MIT said, no, I got a PhD in marketing, uh, not, not only did I have no idea that that would change my life, but I, I, re I rejected it until she convinced me. Uh, and so you, you got to be open to that lightning bolt. You got to you know ask yourself, is there something here? Is there any chance about it? Let me just learn a little bit more about it, even if I don't make a life-changing decision on it. Because most students, regardless of what you measure in, five, ten years later, will be doing something wildly different. And so it's really important not to use your time in college to get the job, but to build as broad and solid a foundation so that when you change your mind, when you find out your passion five years later, you'll be in a better position to see it and to take advantage of it. So be broad, like especially for, you know, Wharton students, take as many courses outside of the Wharton school as you can, because just learning how to think and write and argue and, and, and just appreciate the world will be at least as important as taking another finance course. And of course, the same is going to be true for, for, for all students as well. So, so be broad, be curious, uh, and, 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 and be open-minded. All right. Amazing. And I think for all of the students out there, if you guys haven't already decided to at least take one class in this field, then go rewatch this episode until it really sinks in that you've got to learn at least something about this because this is where the future is headed. But of course, do as many courses, figure out or be open to the lightning bolt. I think that's a really great quote. I'm going to use that. Like I'm going to quote you on that from now on. And for all of those out there who are running a business, who are running a company in a sense, um, if you are, if you can't engage um, the services of companies like Theta Equity Partners, please do. I think it's very valuable. And if not, at least put yourself in that frame of mind to actually look at customer centricity. And of course, to all of those who want to learn more, I think the amazing professor we've been hearing from has so many books published. He has two different books that I've personally been checking out and I think are, is highly recommended. Where, where do we find these books if we wanted to learn more about it and get really understand the research that you've done in a sense? Well, Harsha, you said it right off the bat. Just Google my name, you know? <laughs> Connect with me on LinkedIn. Follow me on Twitter. You know, again, it's, it's nice to have all these companies, but first and foremost, I'm a professor and I love to profess. Uh, so I, I just love using those platforms to, to get ideas out there. Uh, and, and so just I'm very, very happy to, to engage with folks through social media like that uh, and to share a lot of these resources. You know, a lot of these models that we've commercialized, they're out there in the public domain. You know, so they might be a little bit academic, but there's lots of videos and spreadsheets and R code and all sorts of things to bring this stuff to life. So very, very happy to keep the conversation going long after this interview ends. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much. And the comments are just pouring in with a lot of um, happy people thanking you for your insightful sharing, for the wonderful conversation, and also quoting you on a lot of different topics and a lot of different things from figuring out their passion to figuring out how their business works. And I think that you really covered it all. So thank you so much. It's been amazing having you on the show. I hope you had fun as well. I absolutely did. Great questions. I really do appreciate the chance to talk about such a broad array of issues. And I hope that you and, and everyone found it valuable. 
thank you i'm sure we did and for all of you watching thank you guys so much for tuning in you've been an amazing audience you guys have been very engaged with a lot of uh, nice comments in the session in the comment section below so keep the information going um do like and subscribe if you are on youtube or tune in wherever you are at 10 p.m et every thursday for another episode of changing reality thank you guys so much for joining until next week see you guys bye you're listening to changing reality changing reality where we bend reality all across the world only on WQHS Radio.